Thanks for joining us today for the Fellowship Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit fbcpanamacity.com. Now, here's today's message. Now, there's an unwritten rule that dictates every family event that you go to, but especially we notice it around the holidays. And uh, the rule is this, when everyone gets together, we don't talk about two things. What are they? Politics and religion, right? If you talk about it, if you bring it up, there's an instant dread in your heart. Like, oh no, he's talking about the presidential election again, right? Can you relate to this? There's an instant dread in your heart. The thought is if we avoid these topics, we'll avoid strife. Well, as you can imagine, there's a topic in the church that gets the same kind of response. Uh, it's, pro- it's actually kind of a joke sometimes among ministry leaders about, uh, we talk about anything in the church, but good luck talking about that. And uh, that topic of all things that you could hear is often on money and giving. Everyone's like, great. To our guests, I'm so sorry that you get to hear a message about money on your first Sunday with us. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, I think uh, at this point, one of the various reasons people don't even attend church, there's two primary excuses I have heard. You may have heard them as well. People say, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites, right? And the other one is, they just want my money. Have you heard that excuse before? But just because it's not fun or popular to talk about doesn't mean we don't get to talk about it. And so that is my task today. We want to look to the Lord this morning for wisdom as we look at 2 Corinthians 9 to gain an understanding of biblical generosity. And I think what we'll learn as we study this text is that Paul is talking less about the act of giving and more about the giver and the person doing the giving. So we want to answer this question today. What exactly does biblical generosity or biblical giving look like? Now, we need to go back. We need to go back and get some context, okay? Uh, When you study the Bible, and I hope you do study the Bible uh, during the week, when you study the Bible, context is so important. It dictates what the meaning of the text is. We need to know who these people were, where they came from, what was going on in their life, because what the text meant to them back then indicates what it means to us today. Remember, the Bible is not written to us. It was written for us. And we need to understand what the original audience was uh, experiencing. So let's, we got to go back and understand where we're at in this text, okay? 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church uh, at, at Corinth on the island of Achaia. And in this particular epistle, he's writing to defend himself, uh, so to speak. Now, this is not the first time Paul wrote to Corinth, right? This is 2 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, though, tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul had written to the church previously, even before the letter of 1 Corinthians got to them. So really, we could even call this 3 Corinthians, right? But this is what we have in our scripture. The, the first letter he wrote to them that we learn about in 1 Corinthians 5, we don't have. We don't have that letter today, but we do have 1 and 2 Corinthians. So this time he's writing because people had come into the church and suggested that he was weak, that he talked a really big game, but he was actually just a big softy, that he was uh, bold in his letters, but weak when he was together with them. And not only that, they even questioned to a degree his apostleship. So he pens this letter to defend his ministry while at the same time doing what Paul always did in his letters. He encouraged and uh, tried to equip the believers there at the church at Corinth. So now we come to chapter number eight, okay? I know we're in chapter nine today, but we got to start in chapter number eight, all right? Uh, In chapter number eight, Paul turns his attention to financial giving. 
And here's what was going on. In Acts chapter number 11, the Bible says this, 1128 says, And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So uh, what is believed is that around this time, about a year before this was written, there was a great famine in the, in the world, in the Roman Empire. And that the church at Jerusalem had many poor who needed help. And so the church at Corinth and the church at Macedonia determined to help the poor saints at Jerusalem. Romans 15, 25 and 26 says this, but it's, this is Paul speaking. He says, but now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. And then Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, in verse 3, he says, And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. So there's a need in Jerusalem that needs to be met. There are poor saints in Jerusalem who need help. And the church at Macedonia and the church at Corinth have determined that they would give to this collection. Now, chapter 8, verse 1 through 15, is Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians to participate in this collection. Uh, look at verse number 1 of chapter 8. So turn with me to chapter 8. Look at verse number 1. Paul says this. He says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record... Yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desire Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Paul points the Corinthians to the people of Macedonia. And we find there in verse number two that the people of Macedonia had deep poverty. They were in a difficult spot, and yet they had purposed to give to the need in Jerusalem. And Paul, he emphasizes this. He, he reminds them that the, the Macedonians had been quick to give. And look at uh, verse number five. It says, and this they did, not as we hoped, but what did they do first? They first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. They, they had first surrendered themselves to God and then to the needs that were present. Then in, Paul tells them in uh, the next several verses, look in verse seven, he says, therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. Interestingly, this church was doing a lot of the right things. And Paul was saying, hey, in addition to what you're currently doing in your ministry, Add this, abound in the grace of helping out, of generosity, abound in it. Don't just have these things. These things are good, but abound in this grace as well. And he motivates them. Look at verse nine. I mean, I'm sorry, verse eight. He says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. He motivates them with who? 
Christ. What a great motivation, right? If, in fact, the cross should motivate us not to give just our finances, but as the Macedonians did, to give our whole selves to the Lord. And so he points, he says, hey, Christ, who had all riches, became poor so that you could be rich. This is uh, uh, the, uh, the doctrine of imputation, the idea of that Christ uh, took from us our poverty and gave us his riches. Okay, and this is what is motivating them is what Paul encourages them to let motivate them to give. Okay, uh, let's see here. Then we go to verse 10 and 11 and he encourages them. He notices their willingness to give. And now he says, it's time to do it. You purposed a year ago to do it. Let's do it. Let's let's give. He notes the source of giving in verse 12 through 15. Look in verse 12 of chapter eight. He says, for if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath and not according to that he hath not. That's important to note there. If there's a willing mind, in other words, if there's willingness to give, you do that, it's accepted according to what? What a man has, not according to what he has not. In other words, don't give it if you don't have it. Give out of what you have. If you're willing to give, give according to what you have. He continues, for if the, uh, verse 13, for I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not asking you to give to, to create a greater burden in your life, but to meet their need, because at some point they could potentially be needing to meet your need, so that there's an equality among the saints. He concludes this chapter. Uh, let's see here. He concludes the chapter uh, with telling them who he's sending. So he's telling them, I'm sending Titus. And then in verse number uh, 18, he says, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. We could translate that as the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So he's sending Titus and this well-known gospel preacher to them to collect this offering, to, to bring it together so that the church can prove their love, as we see in verse number 24, and to essentially back up Paul's boasting on their behalf. Okay, that's chapter eight. Then we come to chapter number nine. He says in verse one that when it comes to the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Did you use the word superfluous this week? Anybody? No? Okay, all right, I thought I'd ask. Uh, it just means it's basically unnecessary for me to write to you. We've kind of like already talked about this, he says. He says, verse two, for I know the forwardness of your mind for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal hath provoked very many. Paul was going around to, to the churches and saying, hey, the, uh, telling the people at Macedonia, hey, Achaia was ready a year ago to give and their zeal was like motivating them to give as well. He says, I've sent the brethren to you, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest happily if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we that we say not ye should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Uh, he's explaining to them, I'm sending these brothers to you to, to get you ready to give so that when they get there, no one's gonna be ashamed because of the boasting I've had on your behalf. I've, I've said you're ready to give, they're coming to collect it so that no, none of us essentially are embarrassed that you weren't ready, right? Then he comes to verse number five. And this is important because verse five sets the stage for what we're gonna be looking at today. He says, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, 
whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. Now that word bounty there, uh, we can translate that word as generosity. So he's talking about, uh, I'm sending them to you to collect from you so that as you give, it'll be a matter of generosity, of willing generosity at the end of the verse and not as of covetousness. The idea is saying, hey, I want you to give out of the generosity of your heart, not laced with covetousness not with a hope of getting something in return out of just pure on generosity. And then he goes into our text verses today, detailing exactly how they should give this gift. And he gives a brief yet powerful expose on how the Corinthians and all believers, I believe, should approach financial giving in the church. So let's look at it. Verse number six, he answers a question. To what extent should we give? To what extent should we give? Look at verse six. He says, uh, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now, remember what we just talked about. Paul was sending the brothers to them to collect the gift for Jerusalem that it would be out of bounty or their generosity, not of covetousness. And he was hopeful that this church would give that way. But he gives an illustration signifying giving gener generously. And remember something, he's talking to them about giving generously. So the emphasis of these next few verses is not on reaping. It's on the sowing. So here's what he says. The illustration is of a farmer and the law of sowing and reaping. He talks about a farmer. If you're a farmer here today, uh, you, if you had seeds, if you took one handful of seeds and you went into a field and threw down a handful of seeds, you should expect that if you sow sparingly or a small amount, you will reap sparingly or a small amount, right? The inverse is true as well. If a farmer sows a truckload of seed in a field, he sows bountifully or generously. He will reap bountifully or a generous harvest. The proportion to which seeds are sown is the same proportion to which a harvest is yielded. And as we noticed in verse five, the emphasis is on not reaping, but sowing. So to what extent should we give? We should give generously. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, give generously to this need. Because when you give generously, you're sowing seeds. And the more seeds you sow, the more chance you have of reaping a great harvest. So does this mean that we give with the hope of getting something in return? No, I don't believe it does. What it does seem to be indicating is that when we choose generosity, we're planting seeds. We're intentionally planting seeds and the amount of seeds we plant determines the future harvest. Jesus even said, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. However much you measure out is how much will be measured back, right? And if we follow this illustration through though, we'd conclude that generosity has to be done in faith. It has to be done in faith because the only part of giving that we have control over is the sowing, is the generosity of it, which means any harvest is in the hand of God. That we have to trust God for any harvest that may come. So we generously sow seeds, believing that when harvest time comes, God will give a generous harvest. So what extent do we give? We give generously. 
We give generously. Are we, are we all together? Amen. All right. So we give generously. The next part here, though, is he asks the question, answers the question, how should we give? How should we give? Look at verse 7. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Again, remember, Paul is encouraging them to give generously. And just in case they were uncertain on how to do that, he gives a few basic ways to determine a few motives to consider for how they should give. The first being that giving is based on the purpose of the heart. He says, verse seven, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Okay, to purpose in your heart is to give, if I can distill it down, is to give based on your conscience. Not on any outside source, not on any outside factor, but based on solely how each person chooses according to their conscience. And based upon what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 5, you remember what he said there? He said, we're ambassadors to God. Jesus Christ has saved us. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new, right? Now we know that the Lord is the Lord of the conscience. So when you decide to give as you purpose in your heart, I believe that Paul is saying that that should be a decision based on how God leads your conscience. Okay, it should be a decision of the heart based on how God leads your conscience, not the pastor saying you should give this much money, not your friend down the the seat saying you should give this much, but upon how God leads you individually. And then he gives a second motive. He says, first, it's based on the purpose of the heart. But then, number two, it's based on the posture of the heart. And this is important because it's one thing to give, uh, give something to God based upon how he leads you, right? It's another thing entirely to do it the way Paul tells the Corinthians to do. Has God ever asked you to do something? And you're like, okay, fine. Because you're God, I guess I'll do it. Okay, like we... We might laugh, but like sometimes that's really our attitude about stuff, right? Okay. He points out how we should actually give here. He says, so let me give. So how? Not grudgingly. This is the idea of reluctantly or full of emotional pain. Emotional pain. I think of the kids on Wednesday night when I tell them to do something and just the the sadness and the pain on their face to do what they have been told to do. That's what I picture when I think of grudgingly. I, I, sorry, Russ, I picture Cameron. And just like, oh, Pastor Josh. You know what I'm saying? Not grudgingly, like this emotional pain, okay? But he says the posture of the heart should not be of necessity. This is the idea of compulsion or pressure. This pushing down on, this, this idea of like, oh, I absolutely am being forced to do this. Not that way. Don't give that way. You should not give to the work of God reluctantly or out of compulsion. How should you give? Cheerfully. The Greek word is hilaron. It's our, where our English word hilarious comes from. It's the idea of cheerful joy. And I think the best way to illustrate it is when you think uh, is two different illustrations. Do you remember, can you remember, think back for some of you that may be a little longer than others, but think back to when you were able to purchase your first Christmas gifts that you could give with your own money. Can you remember that? When you came out of your own pocket to buy people in your family Christmas gifts. Can you, can you think back to those days? Do you remember how that felt? Man, that was exciting. Do you remember that Christmas morning? You, that was probably the first Christmas morning you didn't care what you got. You couldn't wait to see your family open that gift. 
Uh, it's like, hey, I heard dad say that we need a new set of kitchen knives. And so I bought him a new set of kitchen knives from the Dollar General and I can't wait to give it to him. And he's gonna open it and like, mm, it's gonna be great. You remember that? It's like that idea, like that joy, that anticipation, like I know this is what I was supposed to do and they're gonna love it and oh boy, and you never, they probably never even used it. But man, you were pumped, right? It's like that. But so you might remember that, but you probably might also remember the pain of having to pay your taxes for the first time, right? The wonderful IRS. It was such joy in your heart when you realized you owed the government money. Yeah? Absolutely not. April 15th is coming and it's dreadful. I mean, let's be honest about it. I don't like the feeling of being like, if I don't do this, I'm going to go to prison. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a great feeling. There's a hesitancy. There's a reluctancy there. And these two extremely distinct attitudes demonstrate how Paul wants the Corinthians to give. Give cheerfully, not like, well, what's going to happen if I don't? What's going to happen if I don't? You should give from a heart with a cheerful spirit, not out of reluctant compulsion. And why does the posture of your heart really matter? Why does the motive of the heart matter? Because if you give cheerfully as God leaves you, I believe it is a testament to the fact that God has your heart. And as Pastor Jonathan Pocluda said, what's important is not that the church has your money, but that God has your heart. That's what matters the most. It doesn't matter at the end of the day how much you put in the plate. It's about the heart of what you put in the plate. What matters to the Apostle Paul in this text is that if you're going to give financially, you do it because God has your heart and not for any other reason. The motive for giving matters, and that motive should always be a God-led, cheerful giving. And then he answers one last question. He answers the question, why should we give? Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now, Paul says that God is able to make all grace abound towards you. But to what end? Now, let's skip down. We see that at the beginning of verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That ye, skip past the next phrase, may abound to every good work. The purpose is that God's grace would abound toward the Corinthians, that they may abound to every good work. God's going to pour out his grace so that they can in turn pour it out on others through good works. And God isn't just giving some grace. This is the first of several all statements that Paul makes in verse eight. He is giving all grace. And then he demonstrates how this all grace abounding to all good works functions. Look at what he says in the middle of verse eight. He says that ye always having all sufficiency in all things. Okay, three very specific all type statements here. He says first, all ways. When isn't something always? Never. It's just always, right? If something is always, you can count on it. It doesn't expire. There's no expiration date. It doesn't ever go bad or run out of time. You can literally say this as at all times. So he's saying here that ye always at all times, all the time. 
And then he says, having all sufficiency. Now, the word sufficiency is important. This verse talks about God's abounding grace and our abounding good works. And then he says the word sufficiency. The word sufficiency carries the idea of having sufficient of the, uh, a sufficiency of the necessities of life leading to contentment. Now, we like the always part, right? God makes everything abound to us, his grace abound to us at all times until we figure out what is always going to happen. We would have all sufficiency or everything that we need to be content. There's not a promise of extravagance or of an insane prosperity, simply enough. He says at all times you'll have all that you need. And then he concludes and he says in all things. Now, uh, in our Bible, the word things is italicized, which means the translator supplied that word for the purpose of clarity. So the text could literally, literally read in all. And interestingly, this word all in the Greek in this particular place literally means all. <laughs> Russell got it. Uh, it. Literally means all, just like it does everywhere else. All always means everything. At all times, in everything, in all things, nothing is left out. So he's saying at all times, having all we need in everything. So let's put this all, see what I did there? Let's put this all together, okay? God is able to make all grace abound to us. To what end? Equipping us to every good work. And God will supply all we need at all times in all things so that we can abound to good works. He meets our needs so we can generously care for and meet the needs of others. But this doesn't exactly answer the question of why we should give. Okay, that's great. God is going to meet all of our needs. We will be content in the things that we have. That's great. But why do we give? It tells us how generosity will work out by the grace of God, but it doesn't tell us why we should give. So look at verse nine. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Paul is quoting Psalm 112 verse nine, which means we need to go back to Psalm 112 to figure out who the psalmist is talking about when he says, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. And Psalm 112, one says this, praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. So the psalm is talking about the one that fears God and how they live. If you go back and read Psalm 112, nine, you literally read uh, not just verse nine, but the whole psalm. You literally read the characteristics of a person who fears God. And what is one of those characteristics? Generosity. So what's Paul driving at? I believe Paul's indicating that our generosity at the end of the day is the mark that we truly fear God. We don't give or practice generosity because somebody else tells us to, but because we love and fear God. And look at the end of verse nine. He says, his righteousness remaineth, or, or that means endures forever. The one that fears the Lord gives generously. And the result, his bank account grows and his portfolio expands, right? No, his righteousness endures forever. How can that be? Is it because he gave generously? No, it's because he feared the Lord. Generosity is simply a characteristic of that life. His righteousness remains forever because he feared God. 
And the fact is, you get, if you give because you fear the Lord, you'll give generously, remembering how he gave to you. And you'll give cheerfully because God has worked that in your heart. And you'll give motivated by the grace of God, knowing he will provide for your needs. And when you give based upon the fear of the Lord, that produces a fruit that can never be taken away. That righteousness remains forever. And who gives that righteousness? God. So why do we give? We give because we fear the Lord. We give because we love and fear God and seek to live lives that emulate that characteristic. So ask yourself a few questions. First, do you give generously according to your own ability? Are you sowing bountifully? Okay, and then think about this. A farmer only sows the seeds that he has. He doesn't sow seeds that aren't available to him or that are not at his disposal. He sows seeds that he has, but he still sows those seeds. And according to the proportion that he puts out in the field, he will reap a harvest. So be generous based on what you have. And remember, the proportion of your sowing determines your reaping. Second, how do you give? Do you feel like you have to give? Do you feel like there's no other choice? Uh, are you annoyed about giving? Can you identify your current emotional state as you listen to this text as happy to hear it or a little bit frustrated that God says we should give financially to the church and to his work? Purpose in your heart through communion with God that you'll give cheerfully. That you'll give cheerfully. That we'll look back there at that giving box uh, after the service and people putting in their mission thing and there's just laughter. You probably think you're weird, but it's because you're full of joy. And finally, do you give because you fear God? Or maybe the better question is actually, do you fear God? Because if you do, it seems that one of the characteristics of a life that fears God is generosity. It's just like comes with the territory. Will you allow your fear of God to motivate your giving? Because biblical generosity is based on the fear of the Lord. So let me encourage you with this. Don't let me or anyone else guilt you into giving. Let the fear of God lead you there. When you do that, you'll give generously and cheerfully. And according to the text, that righteousness remains forever. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Fellowship Baptist Church. Come visit us at 2501 Michigan Avenue, Panama City, Florida. For more information, check out fbcpanamacity.com. Have a great week.